Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilded Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. This is David Blight, the director of the Gilder Lehrman Center at Yale University. Our guest is James Walvin. Uh, Jim Walvin is professor emeritus at York University in England. He is the author of more than 40 books, most of which are about slavery in the Atlantic world, the slave trade, uh, black history in Britain, and many other subjects, including uh, one of the pioneering works on the history of English football called The People's Game. He's also the author of a wonderful memoir that I'm going to talk with him about uh, today entitled Different Times. But his newest book, um, and he is here at Yale to speak about this new book on January 24th at the British Art Center. The new book is called Slavery and Small Things, Slavery and Modern Cultural Habits. Uh, welcome back to Yale, Jim. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Um, Jim, let's talk. Let's go right to the new book. Um, Slavery and Small Things. You did a lot of this research right here at Yale and other places. Um, let's talk about how you came to this topic. It is about the commodities, the objects, the products that slavery over three centuries produced uh, from the Caribbean, uh, from the Americas more broadly. And it's, it's been a sort of hidden history in a way. Yes, it's the hidden side of slavery that I wanted to try and tease out. And I started with the idea when I was here working in the British Arts Centre and at the Gilda Lerman Centre. And it struck me that there are a number of objects around us that take you straight to the world of Atlantic slavery, but are never really associated with it. A, a, a beautiful porcelain a, a sugar bowl. Mm. Um, a table made from mahogany that's cut by African slaves, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. And I was prompted by going up to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston mm-hmm. and also uh, reading a book, History of the World in 100 Objects by oh. Neil McGregor, and right. it set me off, right. and that became the book. Yeah, and, and you deal with many different objects, from sugar bowls to cowrie shells to... Uh, houses, the great mansions uh, that were built in England and in America. Yes. Uh, portraits, uh, books, uh, ironworks, chains. Uh, how did you land on the objects you chose, and then how did you ferret out the story of each one of them? Some of them are pretty obvious, actually, they if are, you think of yeah. it. We, we all associate um, the great slave owners with their beautiful houses. And this is one of the curious things about this story, that mm-hmm. we associate... Um, slavery with some beautiful objects. And right. here you have this extraordinary system which is brutal and vile and violent mm-hmm. that produces uh, objects of great aesthetic value today. Right. And yet we don't step behind that beauty to think of the brutality that right. underlay it. If you think you go to Monticello right. or you go to Mount Vernon or you go to those extraordinary houses at Natchez mm-hmm. uh, on the bluffs, mm-hmm. and very often there they don't even mention slavery that lay behind them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what 
struck me was that you could see a beautiful building, an English stately house, for instance, Harvard mm. House. You'd never associate that with slavery in the Americas. Mm. And yet it was um, constructed largely or partly from the profits of slavery. Indeed. Uh, let's bear down on a few of these. Uh, how about mahogany? And uh, it's, it's just a, it's a kind of wood uh, associated with furniture and with beauty. Uh, it's, it's deepness, it's darkness. Um, and yet, take us through that history. A mahogany tends to come only from these islands in the Caribbean or on, in Central America. And it, it became a sought-after yes. commodity that traveled back and forth across the Atlantic. And it's well, all over the world today. What's amazing about mahogany is that uh, North Americans, uh, wealthy North Americans, take to the fashion in the way wealthy Britons do in the mid-late 18th century. Now, North America is groaning with timber. Right. Yeah, it's not a shortage of timber, mm. but somehow or other, this particular wood, which is hardwood and is ideal for craftsmen, mm. develops a fashion after 1721 when the British dropped the tax on mm. importation right. of that. And they do it for shipbuilding. Mm. But that is then quicked up very quickly by craftsmen because they realize they can make great, beautiful objects from it, wonderful dining tables. Right. And very quickly, those with money like to fill their lives with mahogany furnishings. Now, if you go to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston or if you go to Colonial Williamsburg, mm -hmm. you, you're, you're tripping over mahogany furniture mm -hmm. from North America in the 18th century. Right. Why are they shipping stuff up from the Caribbean when they've got plenty of timbers around mm -hmm. to use? Mm -hmm. Because what we don't notice are the, the gangs of Africans mm -hmm. hacking away at this in the rainforests, mm -hmm. in Jamaica, in Cuba, and on, in the Belize Describe that labor regime. That was one of the most fascinating parts of that chapter to yeah. me. You, 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 you showed that it's not plantation labor. It's a, it's a gang form of labor in these dense, terrible it's, it's forests. A, it's a cruel, brutal world. Yeah. These are men, mainly men, who go in gangs and camp out in deep in the rainforest. One of them shins up a tall tree to see where the best yeah. trees are. Yeah. They then fell it. And if you look at these trees, these are enormous yeah. beasts of trees. Uh, they then have to drag it to the water's edge where it's then sailed down rather lumberjack style to wherever the nearest river point is and loaded onto ships. Um, now, these men live in these camps months on end, away from any kind of community. It's a, it's a dangerous world, mm. hugely mm. dangerous job, hacking mm. down these, uh, yeah. these, tr these, these logs. Mm. And um, who thinks that when you're looking at a wonderful table mm. of the people who make it possible? And it's, there is a kind of... Uh, extraordinary gap. There's not uh, extraordinary distance in the 18th century, right mm. down to the present day, mm -hmm. between an object of great beauty that's made by slaves and the brutality of slavery that makes it all possible. Yeah. And that's really what I'm trying to get back to. Of let us look at these objects and look behind them to see mm -hmm. the kind of system that brought it all about. You have a lovely phrase uh, for such a brutal system. You call it slavery's lavishly heaped table. Yes. And, and and that would, of course, include the sweetness of tea, yes. uh, which everyone takes for granted, uh, or tobacco, which well, within a century everyone took for granted. But there was no tobacco in Britain or Europe yeah. until it was grown over here right. and transported back. Yeah. Or uh, cotton. Mm. Um, eventually it's possible for poor people to wear cotton clothing that's cheaper yeah. and thoughtlessly in time. Uh, not even perhaps knowing or thinking where that comes from. Well, if you think of the kind of commodities we take for granted, uh, sweet tea or coffee or chocolate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, tobacco, which is a kind of global epidemic, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, cotton, yeah. 
Yeah. Cheap cotton goods all begin really as mass-produced commodities yeah. in the world of uh, slavery yeah. in the Americas. Yeah. Um, it is an extraordinary phenomenon that we take we take it for granted because they become so much part and parcel of the warp and the weft of the world we live in. Right. But they all depended ultimately yeah. on the sweat of Africans shipped across the Atlantic. Is there a transition somewhere there in the 18th century when the ignorance? of the origin of all of these commodities or you know the the sweetness of sugar the use of tobacco is there is there a point at which attitudes about that change and fuel the anti-slavery movement that is it, are the presence of all these commodities eventually part of the engine of abolitionism or was that engine I a think broader it phenomenon it it is a curious business. It does feed into abolition because yeah. what, one of the most powerful um, tactics that the abolitionists use in Britain from the 1780s onwards is to try and prevent people using sugar, yeah. the um, yeah. anti-saccharides. Right. It's kind of econ it's a bit like the attack on um, apartheid in the uh, yeah. late years yeah. of the last century. Yeah. Boycott. Boycott. Yeah. It's a boycott of sweetness. If you can undermine slavery from within by not buying it, yeah. but even then, there, um, it doesn't work completely because at the very time that the British turn their back on sugar, they yeah. actually are consuming cotton on yeah. a vast scale right. for the new industrial system of Lancashire. Yeah. And where does that cotton come from? Well, it comes from yeah. the Mississippi Delta, and it's shipped out of Mobile and New Orleans, right. and it ends up in Liverpool and Manchester. Right. And the Manchester coat of arms is a confirmation of that. I want to come back to cotton, because that's going to be a transition to your marvelous memoir. But, but stay with this idea of the small things for a moment. Cowrie shells. Now, who, who even thinks of cowrie shells? I was astonished at the sheer numbers and statistics that people have managed to right. amass about this. Cowrie shells that are, apparently have their origins in the Indian Ocean are transported across continents mm. by the billions, and they themselves become what? A kind of currency. They become a currency, a form of And exchange. a form of jewelry. If you think of cowrie time. shells today, I mean, they're marketed um, as items of beauty, as necklaces, yeah. as, as bracelets. Yeah. Uh, African-American women have them in their hair. Yeah. And yet uh, in the 17th, 18th century, they are shipped in enormous volumes from the Maldive Islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean right. to India, <laughs> thence to the European ports of, uh, of, of the Dutch and the British, who yeah. then ship it back to West Africa where, it's where they are exchanged, amongst other things, yeah. for African slaves. Right. And they, at that point, they enter the kind of economies of uh, key areas of West Africa. Yeah. They become a form of uh, exchange. And indeed, they now appear on the currency of Ghana. Uh, these are objects which are Is not right? native. They're on the currency. They're, they're yeah. pictures of cowrie yeah. shells on the currency of Ghana, huh. uh, and yet they're not native to the region. Now, you, cowrie shells do exist all over the world, yeah. but the yeah. best ones are from the Maldives. Wow. They're the ones that become valuable. And what we need to remember is that those cowrie shells are yeah. moved in this process something like 16,000 miles. They're shifted 16,000 miles. Yeah. And what it does, of course, is it opens mm. up the wider story of it's not just the Atlantic slave trade. Right. The Atlantic slave trade is linked to the mm. world of the Indian mm. Ocean and Asia. Mm. It's part uh, part of an extraordinary global economy. Yeah. Uh, and the slave trade sucks into itself. I was struck in your mahogany chapter of that simple but profound point you make that the mahogany logs are transported across from, let's say, Jamaica to England. And uh, what's that guy's name in... Lancashire, who starts making... The Gillows. Yeah, the Gillows starts mm -hmm. making chairs and then desks and then mm -hmm. chests. And 
Pretty soon, by the hundreds and then thousands, these desks and these chairs are being transported to Jamaican plantations, to mansion houses in the American South. And so it's it's in, in the same ships. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, the ships are still plying their trade on the west coast of Africa for slaves. And you know, we, we, we often think of this idea of a triangular trade, but it was... It was rectangles. It was all kinds of it's, it just trying geometrically very, very complex. Very complex. And of course, yeah. one of the things that this raises is that although we think of the slave trade as a kind of almost in a one-dimensional way, we think of slave ships moving Africans westward across the Atlantic. But those same ships arrive on the African coast, yeah. loaded with. Uh, commodities and goods to be exchanged in Africa. And many of those goods are themselves of slave origin. For instance, it becomes very uh, desirable to ship certain kinds of tobacco soaked in molasses from Brazil Mm. and Barbados Mm. to West Africa. Mm -hmm. Now, here is a monster feeding upon itself. The slave system is feeding upon itself. Africans like tobacco that's been grown by African slaves in Brazil Mm. and soaked in molasses, which is from sugar cultivated by Africans. I can't resist one other. You're a master of narrative. Uh, All your readers know that. But you have the phrase also, uh, it may be in the Sugar Bowl chapter, I I can't recall now, but uh, that the system was a callous oppression bringing forth Western fashion and luxury. I mean, this, this mix, you call it the paradox. When Americans think of the slavery paradox, we tend to think of it in ideological terms. We think of it as the Declaration of Independence being mm-hmm. written by a slaveholder, yeah. that kind of paradox. But this is this deep, profound, international, imperial, economic kind of paradox yes. that, that literally changed the habits right. and behavior, not just commodities, but right. the habits right. of Europeans and Americans based on slave labor. And you have that very word, habits, Yes, all over the book. It's in your title. Yeah, I think that's the key to this, is that what, when you start looking at commodities and the way they enter the everyday social lives of ordinary people and rich people, what you're looking at is slavery becoming part of the, the warp and the weft of the way the Western world evolves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just a story of commodities. It's people yeah. becoming accustomed to and behaving in ways yeah. that are so closely and linked to slavery, they don't even notice it. But slavery is a determinant right. of cultural life yes. uh, to a degree that we simply haven't recognized. No. Now, when you started in this field, which dare we say, is 40 to 50 years ago. There was, uh, as you say in the preface of Slavery and Small Things, there was very little written about slavery in the Atlantic world, particularly Mm -hmm. in the British Empire. And you have a a very nice uh, way of explaining that this was was a Britain that believed it was the abolitionist Britain, not the slaveholding Britain. You could not have written this book about small things commodities uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. There had to be this revolution in slavery scholarship, which you've helped lead, before you could get to this kind of subject as a near commonplace. Well, of course, these commodities were produced by slavery, Mm -hmm. although there's still millions of people who still have to learn that and still don't get that. But it's impossible to answer in a short phrase or two, but how did we get from that place of 50 years ago when there was just vast ignorance mm-hmm. of this system of slavery hidden in plain sight, sources yeah. all over the place, physical landscape right. sources, archival sources, <laughs> the Royal African Company's sources, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we get from there to this point in time where this field 
mm-hmm. of slavery studies and abolition studies is as explosive and active as it has ever been. It has been transformed out of all recognition. I recently went through all my undergraduate and graduate notes, 1960 to 66. You Not, can still find them. I, I don't know all. where mine are. <laughs> I've kept them all, and I found them again in a house move. Oh, my God. I went well, through them. Yeah. Not a word about slavery. Interesting. I, yeah. I was not taught anything about slavery. I didn't learn about it either until graduate school. Well, there we go. And I think to what's happened of. is that there's been a transformation in historiography. The Brits were very slow on this, yeah. and they picked up on what was happening in, in North America. Yeah. I think the extraordinary social history of slavery, Genovese and others yeah. in the 60s, had a tremendous impact in Britain. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Genovese and others were also... Very, very influenced by the by E. P. Thompson oh, after yeah, nineteen sixty three. Thompson has a seismic impact on both sides. The of social Atlantic. history of the working class, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that feeds back into Britain that the American historians of slavery, Genovese yeah. particularly, I think, yeah. had an extraordinary kind of uh, influential uh-huh. role in uh, uh-huh. young British historians thinking differently about slavery. Yeah. But the other thing that happened was the kind of social transformation of Britain itself. Britain mm. becomes a mm. very different place. Oh, yeah. If you walk the streets of London now, it's a different street of London from the 1960s. Oh, yeah. You've got generations of immigrants, of Africans and West Indians, mm-hmm. who want to know something about their history. Mm-hmm. And what they were taught has left them unsatisfied. They, yeah. this, this actually doesn't speak to our condition, mm-hmm. our story. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a genuine effort, actually, to probe behind the kind mm-hmm. of uh, traditional facade of British history. Right. and see what lies behind it. And what lies behind it, of course, is a story of empire that is very, very different right. from the one that we were all brought up on. Right. You were brought up on a triumphalist yes. vision. And not without reason in the wake of World War II. Uh, Britain had survived. Britain yeah. had somehow won victory and so yes, forth. Yes, it survived because of American money and help and Russian <laughs> manpower. Um, well, wasn't all Churchill and... Yes. Moral power and courage. You, the world I grew up in was, you know, this is exactly this world. It was yeah. at the end of the war, post-war, yeah. and the first maps we looked at were all shaded yeah. pink. They were ours. This is this yeah. a world that was right. uh, controlled, uh, it seems to be, from where we were sitting in our primary school. Sure, yes, but sure. By us, it was our world. And Speaking of primary school, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to ask you now to talk about your memoir. This is uh, a nice transition. It's entitled Different Times, Growing Up in post-war England. Uh, Not very many historians write memoirs, but yours is not about being a historian, but it is about how you got interested in history. Mm. Um, Let's start there, if you would. I I love this book. Uh, uh, I'll confess it's partly because I I feel an affinity for it. I grew up in a working-class automobile town of Flint, Michigan. Uh, It's not as vast or historic as Manchester, uh, but in some ways close. but your book is first about how you came by an interest in history by listening to your uncles, this, yes. which is an extraordinary story. I think I really um, – the, the, my interest and love for history was nurtured by – not by books initially, but yeah. by the men I grew up with. Yeah. And they were all First or Second World War men. Both wars. Both yeah. wars. Yeah. You heard and stories of both wars. Both wars. And, in the immediate know, wake of the second. Yeah. yeah. This is immediately afterwards. This is the late 40s into yeah. the early 50s. So the late 40s, really. And you're a boy. You're seven, eight, nine, I'm, yeah, ten years I'm old. I'm a young boy learning. Yeah. And I'm very, very curious about this. Yeah. And I think I was kind of uh, cheeky in a curious way about mm. questioning. Mm. And I couldn't get over the stories I gleaned from these old men. Mm. On the whole... Didn't want to talk about it, yeah. as so many men who'd been through. Right. You had to pull it out of them. Yes, it was like yeah. drawing teeth. 
Yeah. Except most of them didn't have teeth anyway. Because <laughs> it's so much like their sugar, they'd lost them. You're right. Um, but my it, uncle Stanley, uh, First World War, volunteered uh, at the age of 17. By the age of 21, he'd served four years on the Western Front. Uh-huh. He was gassed once, but uh, otherwise un- uh, undamaged. Uh-huh. My, the man that brought me up subsequently, because my father died when I was little, was my uncle Joe, uh-huh. who had been a POW in Japan. Oof, and yeah. In 1956, Joe began to unburden himself of the experiences. He'd never talked to anybody. Mm. And then suddenly, because of this mm. curious kid he was talking to, mm. I, I used to do my homework in his front room. You were safe to talk to. Perhaps. And I was absolutely <laughs> neutral. I came right. with none of the baggage of his, of his right. generation. Right. But I was interested. Yeah, yeah. And I listened. And I learned these yeah. kind of horror stories that were yeah. the Second World War and the British defeat in the face of the Japanese. Yeah. And at exactly the same time, in 1956, I... Yeah. was inundated and overwhelmed, actually, by the stories of World War I mm. from Stanley mm. and World War II from Joe. Mm. And these two things yeah. fired an interest at a time that I was wandering the streets of Manchester <laughs> and curious about this mm-hmm. dirty, blackened, uh, still had bomb scars, you know, still had bomb sites. Yeah. And dropping sitting. and dropping into the central library, and of course, you get. and actually, this is one of the great things about public library, civic life right. in this country right. that uh, in, in Britain rather. Uh-huh. This is one of the great things about civic life in Britain that's being unravelled by yeah. the neoliberal uh, consensus, and that is that it provided a culture yeah. that was extraordinarily rich, focused yeah. on its libraries and its music and schools and schools. Yeah. You know, I was I, I got a tremendously good education, free. Yeah. I had wonderful libraries. I wandered yeah. around yeah. and. And I listened to one of the best orchestras in the, yeah. in the world, yeah. all for nothing. Yeah. And this is in a very poor working class area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, one Full of grime and grit. You and use the word grime a lot. Grime and <laughs> you had a constant cold and yeah. a snotty nose. And I love the section where you say uh, people could always tell if someone who's from the mill towns or from Manchester because they just showed on them physically. Yes. I mean, I used to dislike it actually at the time. You got on a bus or a tram, as we had, yeah. with cotton workers, and they were covered with flecks of, uh, yeah. like a dandruff of, <laughs> of cotton dust, yeah. Yeah. And which would get off, on, yeah. rub off on your school uniform. Sure. This is not the 19th century. This is this the is, 1950s. This is the 1950s. Right. And my grandparents, with whom I spent much of my spare time, my weekends, were cotton workers. And so cotton mm. figured very, very large yeah. in my upbringing. And yeah. they all contracted ailments from it. And their, their world was defined by yeah. the, the factories that they worked yeah. in. One of the things I appreciated about your book is that you don't stop every page and whack your reader over the head and say, this is, uh, uh, this is about growing up in the working class. This is working class, working class. You don't say that. You simply do it with the details, mm. uh, uh, whether it's about values or whether it's about food or whether it's about how you bathed mm. or whether it was the ride on the bus to the library or... Uh, attitudes about yourself, you know. Uh, it, it, we, we sometimes get caught up in all these categories we have. Right. Categories are about reality, and that's what your 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 memoir, to me, did. Uh, this is working class Manchester, mm. uh, told through actual lived experience. Well, that's yeah. what I was trying to do. Actually, it was trying to. Uh, look at the themes that really dominated our lives. How did we live our lives uh, mm-hmm. as a kind of daily, weekly, mm-hmm. annual experience? Mm-hmm. What were the issues? And it, well, uh, looking back, uh, the, it, it, it was a world that was shaped by kind of communal interests. Yeah. Did, people did look after each other. Right. Uh, right. That was a kind of working class community of a working class ideal. But right. what beneath all that, the, these more basic issues of 
life and labor and yeah. and love and yeah. cleanliness or dirt yeah. and uh, and food yeah. um such as it was yeah but you don't romanticize it it's not no no, no. I, i've always felt like you know those of us who actually did grow up in the working class don't romanticize the working class. Well, as I say in the book, anyone who'd ever confronted my grandmother's chamber pots couldn't possibly no. romanticize working class life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so before we uh, before we have to end this, which is way too soon, um, you get to go to university hmm. out of the Manchester schools, uh, out of this value system, in a in a system, in a nation that made it essentially free. Yeah. Uh, and you had that aspiration, and you were the first, right, mm. in your whole clan right. to go to university. How did that happen, and what did that mean? Not well, just to you, but to your, because what you do in the book is you yeah. discuss how the, what this meant to the whole of your family. It's hard to remember what it was like then. This is the late 50s. Yeah. A very, very small proportion of people right. in Britain went to university. I think it was something like 5 7%. Tiny, tiny. Is, so yeah. it, was, it was very small. Now it's near 50%. Yeah. Uh, and what it meant not merely to the person going, like in mm. this case me, mm. but to their family. This mm. was an, an incredible mm -hmm. collective achievement. They mm -hmm. took great pride in the fact that their son or daughter mm -hmm. was going to university. Mm -hmm. And you felt proud for them in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, it also meant there's tremendous pressure on you to do well That's right. you know, and keep it up. Um, <laughs> but this was something that they could never have dreamt of. Yeah. I think my grandmother, for instance, was virtually illiterate. Uh, my f grandfather only read one paper and a, a paper devoted to horse racing. The printed worst word... <laughs> Which is a lot of numbers. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. the, pr <laughs> the printed word was not something that they valued, but they recognized yeah. that this yeah. was a, a way out, of course. Yeah. And all for free. I went off to university and I was given a, a scholarship right. and I've never been as well off up to that point. Yeah. I, was, I lived in a house when I went to university that was centrally heated and had an indoor lavatory. Ooh. The first time ever. Wow. I thought this was paradise. Yeah. And stayed you want, So you stayed. They had indoor bathrooms. And I thought, this is too, I'm going to stay in a university the rest of the I'm not going to leave this. <laughs> <laughs> indoor lavatories everywhere I've gone after that. Uh, and they paid me. Yeah. And again, this takes me back to this whole question about Mm -hmm. The rolling up of state intervention today, yeah. that my generation, if you were lucky and you did well, etc., mm -hmm. uh, you benefited uh, from the state benevolence yeah. of, to, a, to a degree that was just extraordinary. I'm tempted to uh, <clears throat> go on on that point about public schools and public I, – I would not have an education either without public schools and public universities yeah. in the United States in the post-World War II era – uh, tuition was very, very cheap where I went uh, as an undergraduate at Michigan State, something we're now at risk of losing in this fervor uh, against uh, public schools. Uh, a last question, though. At what point do you remember the spark to study the black experience, to study slavery, to go look at the Atlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. From whence that spark? While you're an undergraduate or later? Or? That started really at graduate school where I met a man that became a close friend, Michael Creighton. Right, right. And he was working on the Caribbean. Mm. And we became great mates. Mm -hmm. And he, up to this point, I d did nothing about slavery. I'd not read a word about it. Mm. But he, meeting Michael and becoming interested in, he'd written a history of the, of the Bahamas. That's right. Uh, which right. I read. Mm -hmm. And um, he encouraged me to join him on a project 
in Jamaica mm-hmm. from 67. Mm. And thereafter, it took off. Yeah. And I, it, it, I suddenly realized that working and living and researching in Jamaica, that the world looked very different from, from when you're living in London. Huh. And um, yeah. I thought there's something to be done here. Mm-hmm. And there was, and that that's lit yeah. the blue touch paper. Yeah. Well, I can't resist one more question. Then you have uh, an audience among your readership that most scholars don't. Uh, you have managed this process of writing for a literate public on this subject of slavery, black mm-hmm. history, the slave trade, and so forth. Uh, were you doing that from the beginning? Were you conscious of that from the beginning, or did that take time? Uh, I wasn't conscious of it from the beginning, mm-hmm. um, but uh, although I always wanted to write a book that would somebody read. would read. <laughs> yes, I mean, why do we do write a book? Right. Um, but I think what I realized uh, after a few books was that I had a knack of taking mm-hmm. the scholarly work of others, mm-hmm. much, much finer historians than me, mm-hmm. and rendering it into a kind of format that mm-hmm. was accessible to a broader readership. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't place myself in the kind of category of some of the terrific historians of my generation. Mm. But what I've tried to do is actually take their work Mm. and combine it with my own ideas and actually Mm -hmm. give it a kind of, Mm -hmm. not a popular gloss, but create it in a kind of literary format that's acceptable to readership. And you've even been inducted into a a literary society. uh, uh, what's it called? The, well, the uh, fellow of the Royal, the Royal uh, Society of Literature, Literature actually, which right. was the thing that I'm happiest about of, yeah, most of all. I would think so. <laughs> that was, that was right. awarded for writing, for, right. for work in literature. Well, you are a writer and one of the most productive uh, and important we've ever had on this subject of slavery and abolition. Uh, it is great to have you back at Yale. And... Uh, you can come back anytime you want, Jim. Thanks for doing the interview, and we look forward to your lecture. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.